It's fun. It's entertaining. It keeps us connected to our friends and the world around us. But it's addictive. We can't live without it. It's like a drug. Today's electronic technology is having a major impact on our society, ourselves, our children, and all our relationships. In many cases, it's undermining those relationships and breaking down the social fabric that holds us together. This is a problem we need to recognize and one we need to address. This is Green Street. Good morning and welcome to Green Street. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of authors, scientists, researchers, activists, and others who can help you live a more healthy life in this increasingly toxic world. This is a very strange and disturbing time for everyone. Patty and I are broadcasting from our home studio just outside New York City, and like everyone else, wondering what's going to happen next and hoping that all those that we love are going to be safe. Our thoughts and prayers are with our many older friends who seem to be particularly vulnerable to this virus and to those who are facing stressful financial times because of a layoff or a business shutdown. We're grateful for those who continue to put their own lives on the line, the police officers, transit workers, mail delivery workers, the taxi drivers, medical personnel, all those who continue to show up for work, interact with the public, and keep the wheels of our society moving forward. We will get through this, of course, and there may be even a small upside. If nothing else, the crisis is revealing some things about our society which we desperately need to fix. Our air is going to get cleaner as fewer people drive to work or take off in giant jet airplanes to vacations or conferences or family gatherings. We'll reduce our carbon footprint drastically. We may see a renewed interest in electing a competent government instead of one that bumbles and lies and obfuscates. With everyone at home, we'll have opportunities to share experiences, read more books, play more games, work on puzzles, paint the bedroom, repair the scratch marks on the desk, or go outside and plan for a garden this summer. There actually are a lot of things that we can do. Many of us may be tempted to spend a lot more time on our digital devices, everyone in their own room or space, texting with friends or playing video games. Yes, it can eat up the hours and keep us occupied, but it's also doing something else, something we may not realize. Our technology is highly addictive, like drugs or alcohol, and we need to be aware of its impact not only on us, but on our kids. On today's show, we're going to reprise an interview we did a while ago with clinical psychologist Dr. Katherine Steiner Adair, author of The Big Disconnect. That's coming up in a few minutes here on Green Street. But first, here's Patty with the Green Street News. What do you got for us today? Um, three really good articles. Um, the first one was written by Dr. Asaf Bitten. Uh, he is from the Harvard School of Public Health, and it was uh, dated March 14th. And the title is Social Distancing. This is not a snow day. I know there is some confusion about what to do next in the midst of this unprecedented time of a pandemic, school closures, and widespread social disruption. As a primary care physician and public health leader, I have been asked by a lot of people for my opinion, and I will provide it based on the best information available to me today. 
These are my personal views and my take on the necessary steps. What I can clearly say is that what we do or don't do over the next week will have a massive impact on the local and perhaps national trajectory of coronavirus. We are only about 11 days behind Italy and generally on track to repeat what is unfortunately happening there and throughout much of the rest of Europe very soon. At this point, containment through contact tracing and increased testing is only part of the necessary strategy. We must move to pandemic mitigation through widespread, uncomfortable, and comprehensive social distancing. That means not only shutting down schools, work as much as possible, group gatherings and public events, but also making daily choices to stay away from each other as much as possible to flatten the curve. Our health system will not be able to cope with the projected numbers of people who will need acute care should we not muster the fortitude and will to socially distance each other starting now. On a regular day, we have about 45,000 staffed ICU beds nationally, which can be ramped up in a crisis to about 95,000. Even moderate projections suggest that if current infectious trends hold, our capacity locally and nationally may be overwhelmed as early as mid to late April. Thus, the only strategies that can get us off this concerning trajectory are those that enable us to work together as a community to maintain public health by staying apart. Here are five steps you can take starting now to keep your family safe and do your part to avoid a worsening crisis. Number one, push local, state, and national leaders to close all schools and public spaces and cancel all events and public gatherings now. A local town-by-town response won't have the adequate needed effect. We need a statewide, nationwide approach in these trying times. Also urge leaders to increase funds for emergency preparedness and make widening coronavirus testing capacity an immediate and top priority. We also need legislators to enact better paid sick leave and unemployment benefits to help nudge people to make the right call to stay at home right now. Number two, no kid play dates, parties, sleepovers, or mm. family friend visits. Oh, man. Yeah, uh, this is, you know, this goes against everything that humans want to do. Well, especially here in America. This is just our day-to-day activity. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. So let me start again. Two, no kid play dates, parties, sleepovers, or families, friends visiting each other's houses and apartments. This sounds extreme because it is. We are trying to create distance between family units and between individuals. It may be particularly uncomfortable for families with small children, kids with differential abilities or challenges, and for kids who simply love to play with their friends. But even if you choose only one friend to have over, you are creating new links and possibilities for the type of transmission that all of our school slash work slash public event closures are trying to prevent. The symptoms of coronavirus take four to five days to manifest themselves. Someone who comes over looking well can transmit the virus. Sharing food is particularly risky. I definitely do not recommend that people do so outside of their family. Again, the wisdom of early and aggressive social distancing is that it can flatten the curve, give our health system a chance to not be overwhelmed, and eventually may reduce the length and need for longer periods of extreme social distancing later. See what has transpired in Italy and Wuhan. Number three, take care of yourself and your family, but maintain social distance. 
Exercise, take walks or runs outside, and stay connected through phone, video, and other social media. But when you go outside, do your best to maintain at least six feet between you and non-family members. If you have kids, try not to use public facilities like playground structures, as coronavirus can live on plastic and metal for up to nine days. And these structures aren't getting regularly cleaned. Going outside will be important during these strange times, and the weather is improving. Go outside every day if you are able, but stay physically away from people outside your family. If you have kids, try playing a family soccer game instead of having your kids play with other kids, since sports often mean direct physical contact. And though we may wish to visit elders in our community in person, I would not visit nursing homes or other areas where large numbers of the elderly reside as they are at higher risk for complications Mm -hmm. and mortality Mm -hmm. from coronavirus. We need to find alternate ways to reduce social isolation within our communities through virtual means instead of in-person visits. Number four, reduce the frequency of going to stores, restaurants, and coffee shops for the time being. Of course, trips to the grocery store will be necessary, but try to limit them and go at times when they are less busy. Consider asking grocery stores to queue people at the door in order to limit the number of people inside a store at any one time. Remember to wash your hands thoroughly before and after your trip. Maintain distance from others while shopping, and remember that hoarding supplies negatively impacts others, so buy what you need and leave some for everyone else. Takeout meals and food are riskier than making food at home, given the links between the people who are preparing the food, transporting the food, and you. It is hard to know how much that risk is, but it is certainly higher than making it at home. But you can and should continue to support your local small businesses, especially restaurants and other retailers during this difficult time, by buying gift certificates online that you can use later. And number five, if you are sick, Isolate yourself, stay home, and contact a medical professional. If you are sick, you should try to isolate yourself from the rest of your family within your residence as best as you can. If you have questions about whether you qualify or should get a coronavirus test, you can call your primary care team and or consider calling a Department of Public Health. Do not walk into an ambulatory clinic. Call first so that they can give you the best advice. I realize there is a lot built into these suggestions and that they represent a real burden for many individuals, families, businesses, and communities. I also realize that not everyone can do everything, but we have to try our absolute best as a community starting today. Enhancing social distancing, even by one day, can make a very large difference. We have a preemptive opportunity to save lives through the actions we take right now that we will not have in a few weeks. It is a public health imperative It is also our responsibility as a community to act while we still have a choice and while our actions can have the greatest impact. I won't repeat again. This is written by Dr. Asif Bitten from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And it is very recent. It is yesterday. And it's very well written and it's very clear. It's really, it's the best thing I've heard actually about this. Although it's, you know, it's just unbelievable how quickly Our world has changed. The whole thing has changed. Yep. And then there are people who are looking at this pandemic from a different perspective. And being an environmental health show, I thought that this might be interesting. Okay. This is uh, written by Jeff McMahon. It was published in Forbes on March 11th, which is last week, titled Coronavirus Lockdown May Save More Lives by Preventing Pollution Than by Preventing Infection. 
The global lockdown inspired by the novel coronavirus, or COVID-19, has shuttered factories and reduced travel, slashing lethal pollution, including the greenhouse gases that are heating the climate. The lockdown may save more lives from pollution reduction than are threatened by the virus itself, said Francoise Jemen, director of the Hugo Observatory, which studies the interactions between environmental changes, human migration, and politics. Strangely enough, I think the death toll of the coronavirus at the end of the day might be positive if you consider the deaths from atmospheric pollution, said Jemen, citing, for example, the 48,000 people who die annually in France because of atmospheric pollution and the more than one million in China. Scientists estimate the U.S. death toll from air pollution at more than 100,000 per year, and the World Health Organization estimates the global toll at 7 million per year. The global death toll of an uncontained pandemic remains largely a matter of conjecture. The most dramatic projections that have been released, too hastily to be peer-reviewed, put the global death toll of an unchecked pandemic in the millions, total, not annual. Most credible estimates are much less. Some experts have compared it to the 1957 flu outbreak that killed just over one million. The toll from a contained outbreak would, of course, be much smaller. Reductions in air pollution and global heating could save more lives. According to Jemen, more than likely the number of lives that would be spared because of these confinement measures would be higher than the number of lives that would be lost because of the pandemic. The discrepancy in how we react to these divergent threats should give us pause to consider why it is that we respond so strongly to one with less lethality and so weakly to one with more. These are quite fascinating times. What surprises me most is that the measures that we are ready to take to face this coronavirus are much more severe than the measures we would be ready to take to face climate change Mm -hmm. or atmospheric pollution. Mm -hmm. I think this is something that should question us. Why are we so much more afraid of the coronavirus than we are of climate change or atmospheric pollution or other kinds of threats? Yeah, wouldn't it be, you know, there's going to be, I suppose there will be some silver lining, you know, to this dark cloud. And part of it may be, you know, we're going to drastically change because of the way we're, you know, life is changing. People well, I mean, won't be even, even, for uh, yeah, even, you know, even the airlines. The airlines that's yeah. a tremendous source okay. of. It's 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 you know, not that much, gas. you know, you know, percentage-wise, but it's enough that it can make a big difference. Mm-hmm. And shutting down all of those uh, those industries in China, I was going to say, have made a huge difference in the air quality. Satellite over pictures there. of Wuhan are just yeah. amazing. How yeah. the air cleaned up right away. Yeah. So, which so, shows you how bad it was in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, those are uplifting. Thanks. It's my job. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. advent of the smartphone with its capabilities for instant communication and connection has changed the way our society functions and how we function within it. A lot of things are possible now that were never possible before. Some of those things are good and some are not. Because of the coronavirus, many people will be spending more time at home. Kids are out of school, businesses are closed, many parents are working from home. 
And we know there will be tremendous temptation for everyone to just spend more time using their devices, their phones, their tablets, their VR game consoles, and so on. But our addiction to this technology, and I use the word addiction intentionally, is really taking a toll on our society, beginning at the very basic family level. Here to talk about how this is impacting us and our world is our colleague, clinical psychologist, Dr. Katherine Steiner Adair. We originally recorded this interview a while ago, but we felt it was particularly important to broadcast this again at this time. Here's our interview with Katherine Steiner Adair, author of The Big Disconnect. I wrote the book both as a concerned mom and also a psychologist who works around the country with students in school from kindergarten to 12th grade, and I work with faculty and I work with parents. And everywhere I went, there was so much confusion and concern and denial and curiosity about the impact of technology on child development and on how to educate kids. And really, neurologically and psychologically, is there any fallout from all of this tech adaptation that we move so swiftly into that we should pay attention to? So I decided to research it very comprehensively. So I interviewed 1,000 kids between the ages of 4 and 18, 500 teachers, 500 parents, and 250 young adults from 18 to 30, and a bunch of really articulate little nursery school kids. (laughs) That must have been the fun part. And to write four books. And what I wanted to write was a very measured book. You know, I'm not an alarmist, but I am very concerned on many fronts. And I actually ended up writing a different book. I ended up writing a book where there's a chapter from O to 2, and one for 3 to 5, and another one for elementary school, junior high, high school, because at each stage of development, there are different ramifications, different good opportunities, different risks and uh, negative experiences that kids and and adults are having online, and I wanted to make it very reader-friendly for parents. So when you were doing your research, did you look at any of the physical or physiological impacts of exposure to wireless radiation, or were you looking purely at the emotional aspects? When I was doing my research, there was just in the States the beginnings, or at least I was only recently aware, of the beginnings of concern about electromagnetic radiation, about the environmental concerns and toxicity, and I certainly was concerned and write a great deal about it in the book, about the impact of being on screens on the kind of brain you are going to develop in your infant, in your toddler, in your middle schooler, depending on how much exposure you give them to technology and how much homework is required of them on screens and how many hours a day They are using the stimulant of the screen. And these concerns for me begin before birth. So let's talk about the before birth. What kind of technology is out there? What kind of programs are out there for pregnant women that they may think will give their children a head start or something positive? Well, let me begin by saying this research is relatively new. And I guess my thinking about this as a mom and as a godmother to my goddaughter who just had a baby, is be cautious. Until we know for sure it's safe, why take any risks? So the research that I became aware of that was you know, concerning is that electromagnetic radiation breaks through the pregnant 
woman's belly. You don't want to be putting computers on your belly. We've known for years that if you plan on making a baby and you are a man, you should not be putting your smartphone in your pants' pockets because research has already shown us that the effect of the radiation from the phone diminishes sperm productivity. And women should not be running, pregnant or otherwise, with their phones in their sports bra over their breasts. The research that also concerns me about pregnant moms is that there are all these apps out uh, and there are all these crazy devices to weigh the amount of poop your baby expels to... <laughs> Sorry. It's true, yeah. True. Yeah. And to, you know, use apps to determine the strength of their suckling. I mean, this is crazy stuff. And it's very harmful stuff because it is parental, female, maternal, paternal intuition and bonding that is the most essential tool for newborn babies and their parents. And being a newborn parent is really hard and scary, and you go from being really competent at your work and your job to feeling totally intimidated often and really scared. And to turn to technology and have technology triangulate this relationship is very, very disconcerting to me because moms don't develop confidence. They become digitally dependent. They are looking to all sorts of apps and devices, none of which have been demonstrated in the long run to be helpful necessarily, certainly not demonstrated not to be harmful. Apps and, and tech devices have been taken off the market because the Campaign for a Commercial Free Childhood and other wonderful organizations have said, this is harmful to a baby. A potty seat with technology in it to train your baby is harmful. Putting a baby in a little bouncy seat with an iPad in front of them is harmful for their vision and their neurological development. So way before the babies even come, parents are being sort of seduced into a tech-informed style of parenting that disrupts the hard trial-by-error, uh, often tearful learning that is so essential to bonding and parental attachment. And then, of course, if you become a parent, whether you're a mom or a dad, who uses tech a lot, it's very hard when you have an infant to reduce the temptation of texting, going online, going online while you're nursing, checking your fan football while you're giving a baby a bottle. And young parents said to me in my research, I'm so glad I had a baby with technology. I don't know how you changed a diaper before you had a smartphone. And at first, I didn't understand what they meant because I thought, wow, that is not so hard. But what they meant was that if you hold a smartphone over a fussy baby, they will calm instantly because the infant brain loves the stimulation and the light of the, the phone. Mm. And while this works, and it's very tempting to get, hold a phone over a fussy infant, to hand a fussy toddler your smartphone at the checkout line, to every time a baby is fussy, let them play with some app. The problem with this is, is very serious, and it is this. Perhaps the most essential thing we do for our babies from the minute they are born until they leave us at 18 or whenever they do is we constantly are teaching them the essential tool of self-regulation, how to calm down, how to not be fussy, how to be patient, 
had to play little rhyming games or say, I know this is boring, let's do addition, you know, let's make up a story, let's sing Rafi songs. Instead of becoming the voice of internalized self-soothing, which leads to self-regulation, parents are giving their kids stimulants. And no parent I know would wittingly give their babies Ritalin or crack to deal with frustration, but they are giving them neurological stimulants. So what the preschool teachers say, and I certainly have seen it in my observations, and we certainly have seen it in the spike of diagnoses of ADD and young kids on medication, is that this is a generation of babies, when they are given technology, they do not know how to self-soothe, they are too easily frustrated, they crave the stimulant of the iPad, and we can look to the research from Asia where, and the UK also, where there are treatment programs for toddlers who are addicted to technology. I think if parents thought about it in that way, that cell phones are addictive like drugs, that they were actually giving their children a drug, a stimulant, that they would really think differently about this. It's a really important way of thinking about it. Oh, it is. And what, what, you know, we love this stuff so much, and it's so seductive, and we're all psychologically dependent on it. What always continues to challenge me in my attempts to really reach out to parents effectively is the same parent will say, and adults say this all the time, I'm so addicted to this thing. I'm having email withdrawal, you know. And at the same time, they are using the language of addiction to describe their relationship to their smartphone, and they're handing that smartphone to which they use the language of addiction to their children without thinking about what they're doing, which I totally get. But it is something we really need to be far more, far more thoughtful about. Let's fast forward a little past the toddler stage and move into, let's say, prepubescence or adolescence, where it's a very turbulent time anyway. How has this tech been affecting your practice or your observations for teenagers and preteens? Well, I guess there are two, two major domains in which I feel like technology is really changing what it means to be certainly a middle school kid or a high school kid. Um, the first one is just how much time their brains are on. Uh, interacting with technology and the increasing cravings that we're seeing in kids for screens of any kind. And that comes from a combination of factors. One, that screens are used a lot in school, overused a great deal in school, in many schools. Uh, Homework is often screen-based, even though a lot of research doesn't support that across the board. Um, And the other thing is that I I was astonished in doing focus groups with fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh graders, how many of them have their own iPad or smartphone in their bedroom with no parental controls whatsoever? And again, you know, most schools are telling parents, take these devices out of your kids' bedrooms. Certainly get them off of them at least an hour before bedtime because they won't fall asleep. And I don't You know, I think we're just not doing a good enough job helping parents who are so overwhelmed, who themselves have to be, you know, juggling the bleed through of work to home because we've lost the boundary between work and home with technology. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're not helping them be be clearer about how to set boundaries. I think the American Pediatric Association should be telling all pediatricians to tell parents much more directly 
here's what's okay. Here's what's not okay. Take the devices out. And what struck me about the foresters and, you know, the middle schoolers and, and, and late elementary school kids is that, you know, 60% of them were going places their parents had no clue that they were going to. A lot of adult sites, a lot of bad YouTube stuff, a lot of pornography, looking up what is French kissing. You Google search what is French kissing, you get much further into the dark web and into pornography than if you looked it up, you know, in Webster's Dictionary. None of these kids had filters. And when I asked them, if your parents were checking where you were going, would you do this stuff? And they were like, oh, God, no, because then they'd take it away from us. So the good news here is that if parents do set limits and do put in filters and actually do take iPads away, smartphones away, when kids use them inappropriately, you know, then there's a lot more we can do to, to own the pace at which our children are exposed to the adult world. You're listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guest is Dr. Katherine Steiner Adair, author of the award-winning book, The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. In your view, Catherine, what's the, the more dangerous thing, that we're losing the personal communication between a parent and a child that helps the child develop, or that the child is becoming dependent on the technology and is leading them into other places? Well, they're just so related, Mm -hmm. so related, you know, and and the third thing I would add to that is that when the child goes to their parents, mom, help me with homework, dad, help me with homework, hold on, I need one sec, just have to finish They go back in. Most kids told me they will go twice. They'll interrupt their parents twice and ask for help, help with homework, ask them a question, and then they give up because adults have such a hard time turning away from their technology, which has to do with how our brains interact with it, which we can discuss later if you want. Then what happens is when parents are so plugged into their own devices and kids are left to their own devices, they literally turn to their own devices as the de facto go-to parent source. And the problem with that is that there's no question your kids could ask you that technology can't answer. But technology does not have your values. It does not know the age of your child. And nor will it necessarily answer in the way that you want it to. Mm-hmm. So this little 11-year-old boy told me a story about how he decided he wanted to ask his dad what the word pornography meant. Great question for an 11-year-old boy. And, you know, he went to his dad. His dad was working. Finally, you know, two times, okay, he Google searched it. Well, the, this young, adorable, very smart Young boy got caught in a YouTube video that was so sadistic and gory and violent that he had flashbacks for two or three days. He became very anxious. He couldn't go to school for two days. And he told me this story and said, oh, and that, that's, that is how I lost my childhood innocence, Google searching vocabulary words. Oh, man. He told you that? Yeah. Oh. He, he went through his 20 vocabulary words and then thought, oh, there's one other word. Mm. Wow. So, you know, the thing that's very tricky also, of course, I'm very concerned about kids' frustration with their parents. When I interviewed a thousand kids, they used the following adjectives over and over and over to talk about the downside of tech in their family. And the adjectives were bad, mad, lonely, frustrated, and angry. 
And it didn't matter how old they were. They talked about times where they were just unable to get their parents' attention. And, and as kids got older, you know, they were increasingly sophisticated. Like, you know, I get it. My dad works so hard. I respect him so much. He's got this amazing job. We get to go on these wonderful vacations. But honestly, do you have to text that on the ski lift? Is there any time, you know, like parent-child stuff comes first? You know, that's, so that's, they, they, that's so interesting. I mean, a, a precursor to that, I mean, I remember when, I mean, we didn't have, you know, it was not the digital age um, or it had started, but we had not engaged in it um, as a family when our kids were little. But even when I was just talking on the telephone on a landline and I had maybe one of them in my arms and I was talking and they just, it was that constant grabbing my face and turning my face toward them. That's exactly right. And we, there you go. You know, and and it's so much harder because with a phone, a, a landline, um, it's actually much easier to disengage from the landline, neurologically, mm-hmm. from a smartphone. And and kids told me all their different ways. You know, five year olds and fifteen year olds was trying to get their parents' attention, grabbing their phones, flushing their phones, snapping their fingers in front of their parents' eyes, saying things like "the house is on fire." <laughs> But let's pause for a second and think about it. When you are texting, especially, here's what happens to our brains. Your auditory processing goes down. You literally don't hear as much, which is why it's so frustrating when you turn to your husband or your wife or your kids and they're texting. You say, come on, dinner. And half the time they don't even say anything back. And most of the time it's a grunt. Yeah, okay, huh? Whatever. Because your auditory processing is disengaged in the from the way it normally would hear if you weren't so hyper-focused on your smartphone. The other thing that happens is empathy gets dim. So if your child were to interrupt you, mom, dad, we're going to be late for school, and you're putting their lunches together, your tone of voice would be much more reassuring. It's okay, honey, we're not going to be late. I'm just putting your lunch together. If you're texting, it's like, wait, hold on. No, we're not. Wait, this is important. This is for work. So we end up responding to these little people who need us or big people who need us in a tone of voice that is not our most relational or sympathetic or or kind. The other thing that happens when you're texting or talking on your phone is you lose what's called ambient awareness. You lose track of where you are in time and space. So we say things. We become disinhibited. It's cyber disinhibition. And we say things, and we say things that we often would not say face-to-face, and we certainly say things that are inappropriate in front of children because we literally forget where we are in time and space. I mean, everybody's had this experience of sitting next to somebody on the T or the bus or a plane and hearing a conversation that is not meant for public ears. So that's, you know, kids are really struggling and parents need to do a better job of self-regulating and families need to do a little better job of having understandings about when it's okay to be on screens and when it's not. You know, have screen-free living rooms. Have the dining room or kitchen be a tech-free, screen-free area. Protect zones of face-to-face interaction. Otherwise, it's so contagious. Somebody picks up their phone, you run and get yours. Very contagious. How do you see this playing out in in our society? What are the long-term implications for us as a as a society. How is this going to impact us in the long term? Well, you know, one of the things that I think comes up in my work and Sherry Turkel's work and a woman named Mary Akins who's got a book coming out 
is, um, and many people have written about this, is real concern about uh, love and the capacity for intimacy and deep relationships and enduring relationships. And, you know, you asked me what I thought was more dangerous, the lack of kids' connection to their parents or where they would go online. There's so many wonderful things kids are doing online. There's just no question about that. And, you know, depending on who your kids are, 60, 80, 90%, maybe 100% of what they're doing is good in social networking sites. But the stuff that's bad is really bad. And one of the saddest things I heard from the end of high school young adults that I interviewed in in many different iterations was the following statement. Um, It's so ironic. We're the most connected generation in history. But we're really bad at falling in love. Not good intimacy. We don't know how to be vulnerable. We text each other at 2 in the morning, hey, what's up? R, letter R, letter U, letter up. I mean, everyone knows that's a booty call. You don't even go out for a drink anymore. So, which isn't to say there aren't kids out there who are having wonderful, loving relationships, but you have to really manage yourself and how you participate online and, you know, whether you go on Tinder or whatever dating site they are. You know, there are all sorts of things that we know from research about dating sites that lead to a great deal of vulnerability and psychological fallout. As a species, we fall in love best when we meet somebody and interact with them viscerally. And the the tricky thing about cyber romance is that you are relying on intuition and verbal skills and uh, reading body language and all sorts of skills you've cultivated in real life to judge a person. Are they safe? Are they romantic? Are they kind? Are they mean? Are they abusive? And those intuitions do not work nearly as well and do not help you nearly as much in online dating. Plus, when people connect online, they take risks, they open up more, they say things about themselves, they become disinhibited, they wouldn't normally say perhaps on a first date. And then there's this mechanism psychologically where when you have revealed things about yourself, that feel a little scary and out ahead of of things, you are more likely to deny red flags about that other person. Well, that's interesting. That thing that happened to you, Mm. you are much more likely to trust that person than you would if you met them in real life, and you would be much less likely to reveal that so quickly if you met them in real life. It creates a hyper pace for falling in love or dating or thinking you're in love, and... There's a lot of bad stuff that happens when folks meet up. You know, the the research on date rape, on for people who, quote, meet up on uh, dating sites and then uh, go on a first date, is there's a recent study out of the U.K. It was very disconcerting. You have to be so careful. You think you know somebody online, and you just don't. You can't. Right. You're listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guest is Dr. Katherine Steiner Adair, author of the award-winning book, The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. I'm going to just talk about, um, if you could, um, 
You know, I mean, there are the physical dangers of, of texting and not being aware of your surroundings. I mean, friends of ours live in, in, the, in the city in New York, and they were coming back from the fireworks display on, on the 4th of July. And as they, as they walked down the street toward their apartment, um, there was an ambulance and, you know, all kinds of policemen. Uh, you know, a, a young girl had just walked right into the street without even looking and was hit by a, an SUV and killed instantly. Just... You know, because she was completely unaware, just texting. So you have the physical danger, I'm sure. And, of course, that holds true for cars, too. You know, kids and, and, and adults who are texting, you know, while they're driving. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all know that these are that these are real things that are happening. But the other dangers are, are relationships. And you had just talked about this, you know, these love relationships. But how about relationships between teenagers where, you know, there's this bullying that's going on? I think some of our listeners would be anxious to hear a little bit about that from your perspective. So one of the hardest things about being a teenager or a young adult is you are still in a really fluid time of figuring out who you are. Are you okay? Are you attractive? Do you matter? Are you cool? Do people like you? And that's really tough going. And it lasts, unfortunately, longer than most of us would like. And we're constantly looking for feedback about who we are in the world. And what is so hard is that when you look for that kind of feedback online, particularly on certain sites like Ask FM or Whisper or even you know, Instagram, FormSpring, these anonymous sites where, or, you know, there's the Am I Pretty, that's a whole meme online, girls go up online, they talk into a camera, they ask for feedback. And what is so devastating and astonishing is the amount of hate from strangers. It's just appalling. And some of that hate comes from people who are grooming kids for abuse. Some of it just comes from very disturbed people. Some of it comes from kids, people who just think it's funny to be hateful. But we know, well, one of the things we know about the disconnect between who we are face-to-face in real life and who we are online is that an- anonymity makes us take risks in being more socially cruel, more gossipy, more snarky, when you don't have to see the impact of your words on the other people, on the person, we say things that we know are hurtful without feeling guilty or remorse. And, you know, one of the texting's great for many, many things. I love texting with my kids. I like knowing if they're going to be late. I'll text on my planes, you know, running late, whatever it is. But the problem with texting is it eliminates two of the most essential tools for human communication and human relationships, and that is the ability to hear tone of voice. You get a text, S-O-R-R-Y, and you're a teenager. You don't know if your friend is saying, sorry, not meaning it, or, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, or I get it, I'm really sorry. You don't know. And the other thing that we eliminate with texting is seeing the impact of your words on the other person, reading social cues. So when kids are feeling vulnerable, they go online, they might post something, they post a picture, they think they're very excited, they're hungry for feedback, they want, and you even look at how these sites are set up, you literally get likes or followers. You know, people really constructed this brilliantly to play on the vulnerability of all of us needing feedback and validation. And then you don't get a response, or worse than that, you know, 
you get a snarky response or you get made fun of or people send all these likes and then you realize that they're subtexting behind your back saying, yeah, do you believe she posted that? Oh, my God, etc. So it's a very vulnerable place. And unfortunately, in this country, this is not universal. There is far less cyberbullying in Japan, for instance. It's not a universal thing. Different cultures create different cultures online, and we would do well to learn from other countries and study other countries. But certainly in our country right now, you know, we have a, if I can dare go to this place, we have a president who uses texting to spread hate, bigotry, misogyny, and he makes it into the press day after day after day for creating a new cultural norm. We've had leaders text and get tons of attention. So one of the things that we're not paying a lot of attention to is the bleed-through of a lot of the very harmful, disrespectful, hurtful, racist, sexist norms on some technology sites to everyday culture. And we have created new cultural norms, very simple things that 15 years ago, 20 years ago, would have been considered unbelievably rude and obnoxious. You know, nobody would take a call at the dinner table. Nobody would open a book and start reading at the dinner table, like, you know, and responding or writing a letter at a restaurant, I mean, sending a text. I mean, this is unbelievably rude. So we've created these norms very quickly. Kids are certainly struggling with them when their parents are doing it, but they also struggle with it with one another. So I think everybody's at a moment in time where we realize these are extremely powerful tools, and they have wonderful uses, and they also have some really damaging uses. And we have to own uh, what we're creating. We have to hold technology companies much more accountable. You know, it is a very unregulated world in the tech industry. You, could, you can't try out medications on babies that are going to hurt them, but you can develop a product that's going to hurt them. There's no ethical review board for so-called educational toys that, in fact, are not educational. And some of them have been shown to, you know, things that supposedly will make your baby's vocabulary better. The research says that they, not only do they not make your baby's vocabulary better, they diminish the development of vocabulary. So this is a totally unregulated world, and we need to speed up our thinking about how to regulate this space that we all occupy that is not just a democratic utopian space. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guest is Dr. Katherine Steiner Adair, author of the award-winning book, The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. This is so fascinating to me. I, you know, I'm one of those people that believes that most people are good, and I, I wrote down cyber disinhibition. Did I get that right? Is it the tech that's making people bad? What is it that's bringing out the bad side of people? Because I've noticed, you know, I've done no research on this, but you can't help but notice 
when you read you know a newspaper story or see something and there's a, a place for comments below the vitriol the just the the level of anger always Angry surprises me i think disrespect. you know really I, I, this is a newspaper so we don't have to get this upset and start calling each other so is this what people are really like if we strip away the veneer that that you know social norms provide well i think we're stripping away social norms going on for years and then you add to that a form of technology that's a stimulant, that's a dopamine hit, where your brain actually lights up and you feel better when you're being mean. But I think that the first place to start is the stripping away of cultural norms. And my point here is that you don't see this behavior in Japan. You don't see this behavior in, Scand in the Scandinavian countries. You don't see this behavior in a lot of places in the world because... The fabric of the society is stronger, and freedom... You know, one of the things that I struggle a lot with as I work internationally is I see that other countries have a different constitution, and they have different opportunities. And freedom of speech in our country is such a um, held unalienable right, held up unalienable right, but we live in a world where... Speech travels in new mediums and through new technologies. And to protect, we place freedom of speech over safety and, and hate and protecting childhood. Other countries have the Minister of Child Welfare. Yeah. You know, and they we are need, very empowered. And those are the countries that are doing the best work with digital filters and mm. educating parents yeah. and mm. making yeah. sure the kids don't have access to porn, period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But in our country, our constitution, you know, we see this in other areas. But, you know, we're, see, we're certainly having this conversation around guns. Ugh. Yeah. Weapons. Yeah. We act as if we can adapt in this entirely different world safely, responsibly, thoughtfully, humanely, by still relying on a literal interpretation of the constitution. And this is this is a real challenge because the big the, there's such big issues about the dark web, the amount of crime, drugs, porn, trafficking, identity stealing, money stealing, all sorts of stuff that is going on, billions and billions of dollars a day, getting uh, traded around drugs and all sorts of stuff, and there's no there's no international regulation. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to handle this. You know, the, the, we needed like a United Nations of the tech world. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and we, we, we really need to ramp it up. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people who are extremely knowledgeable about these things who are not in into the level of conversation yeah, exactly they're they're not being heard yeah. Catherine was there was there feedback to your book from the uh, from the industry has the wireless industry uh, had anything to say about this are they providing studies that prove you know that try to prove the opposite of what you're saying um, I think well the feedback from the world of educators and psychologists and parents has been overwhelming. Sure. Yeah. Um, and very positive, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Top ten nonfiction from the Wall Street Journal, stuff like that was right. very rewarding because honestly there are times I wondered, what if nobody cares? <laughs> what if I'm doing all this work and 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 yeah. the train is out of the station, yeah. you know?
Um, so fortunately, that did not happen, and and I've sort of been around the world in in different areas uh, twice now since the book came out in 2013, and, and doing a lot of work in the states, and and wonderfully invited into work with government um, folks and state you know policymakers and educators and and increasingly corporations. Really, it's very exciting because you know we have to protect family life for the workforce mm-hmm. and. And the workforce knows that if people are compulsively checking and doing work online all night long, you know, you're just not getting your, your the best out of out of your employees. So anyhow, there are all sorts of places where the book has been wonderfully received. I would say the biggest um, lack of embracing of the research that not only I have done but many others have done has been in the education field mm-hmm. and in the development of apps and games. Right. <coughs> Um, and, you know, everybody's trying to come up with the next best way to educate kids online and e-books and e-readers and all this kind of stuff, which isn't to say there are not truly fantastic, unbelievable opportunities for screen-based learning. But there are also some real drawbacks. And, you know, school systems, you look at what happened in L.A., you know, every kid got an iPad really quickly. Well, they turned that around. They had to because kids were shopping at J. Crew and doing all sorts of stuff. They realized they couldn't regulate it. Mm. So th- we have to sort of push the pause button and rethink and reboot. When is the right time, place, <laughs> age, amount to use technology for education? What are the things kids do not learn better through screen-based learning? Do we, you know, people say oh, we don't even need to teach handwriting. Well, that's a huge mistake. I, I read about that in the Times. I was like shocked. When we write something out, which is why often we have to write something to think about what we know, right? Right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Our brain encodes information very differently. And regardless of whether you're ever going to use writing per se a lot in your life, the physicality of using your hands in those ways creates all sorts of neurological pathways in your brain that do not get developed if you are only swiping with your index finger. And this is showing up early, five, six, seven-year-olds. I mean, Marianne Wolf's research about the reading brain and the impact of technology on the reading brain is so important for parents to to understand, which also isn't to say there are some kids for whom technology is enabling them to read because they have learning difficulties and technology can engage them. So it's not a black or white thing. Mm -hmm. That's the point. We have to be far more thoughtful and more nuanced in how we are using this and, and pay attention to research. One of the hardest things about this revolution, and it is a profound revolution, is that our adaptation is way ahead of research on efficacy. You've been listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guest has been Dr. Katherine Steiner Adair, author of The Big Disconnect. I want to give a special thanks to all of you who have joined us for this program, to all the staff at WBAI who are working their way through this crisis and keeping the station on the air. We are very appreciative of all their work and dedication. And also, of course, to all of you who have contributed over the past few months to WBAI to keep this station and this program on the air. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, please be well, be safe.